Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 9, The Writing on the Wall. What's going on here? What's going on? Attracted, no doubt, by Malfoy's shout. Argus Filch came shouldering his way through the crowd. Then he saw Mrs. Norris and fell back, clutching his face in horror. My cat! My cat! What's happened to Mrs. Norris? He shrieked. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Kyle. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Every time I travel outside of the U.S. and return back to America, there's this very frightening moment where I get off the plane and I stand in line for immigration. Now, I have a British passport, I have a Dutch passport, I have a visa for the United States, you know, I have all the paperwork that I need. But every time I get in that line, my palms start sweating, I start getting nervous, I remember that maybe I have some cheese in my bag, which is probably illegal, and I get really flustered and really scared. And by the time that I arrive at the custom agent's little box area, I am a, like, sweating, sweltering mess, and I look so guilty, I'm probably a highly sought-after criminal. That's how I look. And it doesn't help that in America, the border guards are very stern. And, you know, it's supposed to be this great moment of welcome, and it feels more like an interrogation. I've had a couple of times where, because my paperwork is a little complex, I'm taken to a side room, and they have to background check me, and I feel like I'm going to be put on a plane home again anytime soon. And it's always so frustrating because I'm innocent, but I feel so guilty. And it feels like I'm being treated guiltily. And I have to like hold on to this knowledge that I'm innocent in a very fiercely protective way because part of me feels like I'm not anymore. And I really feel like we can see that theme of innocence or more like contested innocence in this chapter of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets because, you know, suddenly there's all this suspicion about who is the heir of Slytherin. You know, Harry starts getting treated differently by people like Justin Finch Fletchley and there's rumors starting to go around the school grounds. And I'm just really interested in thinking about what makes someone innocent and how do we know and what's the benefit of treating people with innocence. And I think there's a whole bunch of questions that we can explore together today, Vanessa. My grandmother would say, if you feel guilty, you've probably done something wrong, Casper. <laughs> I mean, we're all guilty of something. Exactly. <laughs> Casper, I think that that's a fantastic story and something that we see in this chapter and something that we see in the world a lot of people giving false confessions. And innocence is complicated and it can become confusing when you're in a tight spot. And especially, I mean, in the story that you're telling and in this chapter when the stakes are so high. So I'm excited to talk about innocence with you. Vanessa, it's time for our 30-second recap. 
And I believe you're going first. Are you ready? Of course. I'm always ready. All right, here we go. Three, two, one. So it turns out that Mrs. Norris has been petrified, and um, Filch and Snape, of course, immediately blame Ron, Hermione, and Harry. Um, everybody then thinks that Harry is the heir of Slytherin, and also there's like a, a rumor about the Chamber of Secrets. So Hermione asks Professor Bims, I think, to um, tell the story of the Chamber of Secrets. He's like, oh, Salazar Slytherin started a chamber, and that's what the rumor is, but it's just a rumor. And... Um, that was pretty good, but it, it didn't get to the crucial things. That's not true. It got to all the crucial things. It was just a little sloppy. <laughs> like my cooking. has the crucial things a little sloppy? <laughs> That's my cooking, too. It's actually my life. <laughs> I like to say I'm a type A minus. <laughs> That's true. That is the greatest description I've ever heard. Casper, are you ready to show me how it's done? I'm, I'm going to do my best, yes. Okay, on your mark, get set, go. So Snape discovers them, or no, someone discovers them, and they're taken to Lockhart's office, and everyone's there, and, and, and um, it's bad. And why does Dumbledore bring them? Good question. Um, there they learn things. Then Binz's classroom, and we learn about Chamber of Secrets, Salazar Slytherin, um, founded it over a thousand years ago, but we don't quite know when, And um, but he doesn't like muggles, and so there's a break, and he hides a monster in the Chamber of Secrets, but it's not real, it's just a story, says Bins. And then um, we learn about Polyjuice Potion because um, there's a plan to Time. become Slytherins. A little elbow and butter moment there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means, but we're just going to leave it up to the listeners. Vote for me. <laughs> Vanessa, as we dive into this theme of innocence, I want to start with a moment in the text where Harry, who, you know, first he's accused of being the heir of Slytherin and writing this horrible writing on the wall and petrifying Mrs. Norris, Filch's cat. And Snape detects that there's something that Harry isn't quite telling the truth about. And he's like, well, why were you there, not at dinner? And Harry's like, I was at the death day party. You know, uh, please, no, we're fine. We're, we're very innocent. And then Snape says, yes, but why then did you go upstairs if the death day party was downstairs? And we all know that it's because he heard these voices, right? And Harry decides not to tell the truth about that and instead to make up kind of a silly lie saying that they were tired and they wanted to go to bed without dinner. And Snape immediately knows that he's not telling the truth. And to be honest, that is kind of like how I feel at that immigration station where I'm like, okay, my flight was via Denmark. Does that mean I have to write Denmark on the list of countries that I've visited? You know, I feel like I have to hide certain things and I just don't know what's sensible to share, even though they're perfectly innocent reasons. But I'm worried about how it's going to look or how it's going to sound. And so I'm just keen to figure out with you, like, why do we sometimes tell untruths to hide truths, even if those truths that we're hiding are perfectly innocent? First of all, I think that the reason for these things is a keen sense that perception is reality, even though you know that technically you weren't doing anything wrong. It's like having your hand caught in the cookie jar. And you're like, no, really? I was putting more cookies in. But there's just this awareness of like, but I know this looks bad. I know it looks bad, even though nothing bad was happening. But part of me wants to say that it's just thousands of years of religious training, that we all feel a little bit guilty all the time. There's the idea of original sin. There's the idea that we've disappointed God all the time. There are just really these cultural norms around feeling implicitly guilty all the time. One of my favorite lines in one of my favorite novels, Jane Eyre, 
I will misquote now, is that people think that being unlucky is contagious and deserved. And I think that's true. When something where I'm really the victim of a situation happens, I always try to figure out what I did that participated in that thing happening to me and what I could have done differently. And I feel shame around it. And I think it's because on some deep level, we feel guilty even when we've done nothing wrong. I mean, that's so true. And I think that I'm just thinking now about the physical space of an immigration process, like the fact that you have to line up for a long time and the fact that someone else is there in a uniform behind a screen and they're lifted up in all of the systems of power and you're made to feel small and like you don't understand the 10 different forms that you have. Just like Harry doesn't understand these voices that he's hearing and you're just made to feel like I don't have control in this situation. I'm guilty. I'm bad. I mean, this is helping me think about, well, maybe next time I'm in that line, I'll just be like, I made a bad decision about taking cheese with me, but I'm not a bad person. And taking cheese with you is usually a good decision. Cheese is always tasty. The moment in my life that that reminds me of is if I go to a doctor because something hurts. And then the problem is that when you're in these situations, the experts have the right language and you don't, right? With an immigration officer, they know what they mean by did you visit a country, but you're like, I don't know what that means. And so a doctor will be like, describe the pain. And I'm like, you know words to describe pain. I don't. It hurts. It just hurts here. And then I'm like, should I even be here? Am I being dramatic? Maybe there's nothing wrong with me. Maybe there's really something wrong with me. Maybe it's a tumor. Whereas they have all of the information and expertise. So I feel like these things become exacerbated when there's a power differential and when you don't understand the potential consequences of what you're confessing to. If Harry understood that Dumbledore would just help him, and I think that Obviously, he would be more apt to share that information, but you don't even understand if you're doing something wrong. Gosh, the more I think about it, Vanessa, the more I'm beginning to think that another reason why Harry doesn't want to share that information really relates back to the sorting hat moment, because Harry knows that there is something inside of him which is Slytherin-esque. And I'm not sure he trusts himself fully that it's good. Like, he knows that he's innocent, but underneath that... There might be this doubt that actually is there something that is guilty. Am uh, I the one who wants to go around killing people? Right. Yeah. I really like that, Casper, because I think that Harry must be worried. Like, if I hear this voice and Ron and Hermione don't hear this voice, then is it just something inside of me that wants to enact this violence? Did I accidentally hurt Mrs. Norris without even meaning to? And he knows that he has powers that he doesn't understand the full extent of, so being concerned about what can I do without any control, I think, is a question that probably weighs heavily on Harry. But that, to me, leads to, you know, another meaning of innocence, which is that naive, sweet innocence of children. And I feel like Hermione embodies that in this chapter. She is just innocently really curious in her typical Hermione academic way as to what the Chamber of Secrets is. And so she does what she always does, which is asks a question of a teacher. And there's just so much innocence in that of like, knowledge can help us figure this out. And if I just have the information, I'm going to be able to come up with an action plan. And then she does. 
I love that you see innocence in that classroom exchange between Binns and Hermione. And for context, they're in another boring history of magic class and everyone's falling asleep. And then suddenly Hermione's like, I have a question. I'm going to ask Professor Binns. And Binns is kind of overwhelmed that anyone is engaged in the classroom, which was kind of a sweet moment. But where I saw innocence in that exchange was that Binns is so trusting of Dumbledore because he explains to Hermione and the rest of the class, there is no chamber of secrets. It's a myth. It's a story. We deal with facts, not made up imaginations. And so he's very frustrated with Hermione, how seriously she's taking this. So there's this kind of innocent trustingness that the people who've searched the castle haven't found it, therefore it doesn't exist. And even the way that he thinks about history is kind of naive and innocent. He's like, history is about facts. And we all know that history is a multiplicity of stories and many different perspectives on things that have happened. And so there isn't one history. So it feels like Bins not only is stuck in his ghostly approach to classroom management, but also stuck in an old version of what the subject of history is about. It reminds me of when people say, oh, it's fine that the government is tracking everything on my phone. I know I'm innocent. Or trusting that political forces or social forces are like going to do the right thing. I find myself not ever actively thinking it, but on a subconscious level, if someone gets arrested, it's, well, they might not have done the crime that they are being accused of, but like on some level, they must be guilty or why were they there? And I know that that is profoundly untrue and that there isn't justice in these forces. But I just think that we're so conditioned to trust authority figures and trust that the system is doing what it should do. And and we don't stop and see that that's not true until, you know, the Chamber of Secrets gets opened and people start getting attacked. You're so right, Vanessa. We see in the text how, you know, as soon as people are accused, they're treated differently. And Justin Finch Fletchley avoids Harry in the corridor because he's suspicious. And Filch immediately accuses Harry of being the killer of Mrs. Norris just because he's found at the scene. So we see how quickly those kind of accusations and rumors develop. But there is something, you know, on the other side of that, especially when you're dealing with bigger systems, you know, if you get lost in a system, a big list of names, for example, you do get pulled aside at immigration. Sometimes, you know, it's a slip up, not a conspiracy, because mistakes do get made. And so how do we balance between that thin line of wanting to be generous and presuming innocence, and at the same time, not being naive? That's a really tricky line to walk. You know, I've had miscommunications at immigration, but I so deeply know I'm innocent. I'm like, I'm a short woman with all my papers in order. And I think I overtrust the system. I'm like, what trouble could I possibly get into? So I think that identity politics, you know, starts to come into play, too. I think you're so right. I think these themes of identity are so intertwined with how we think of innocence and guilt and how smart we need to be about knowing how to maneuver around these systems. You know, right now I know of Muslim friends who are changing dates to return to America before Inauguration Day because they can't be naive about the situation of a president who said that he will ban any Muslims from coming into the country. Or, you know, the ways that black young men are sort of trained to, as soon as you get pulled over by a cop, put your hands up. Even if you've done nothing wrong, you know you don't have a gun in the car, just put your hands up. That's that's exactly what this is about. I mean, there's one more place where I really see innocence in the text, and that's poor Mrs. Norris. Yeah, she's guilty. <laughs> she deserved to be petrified. She's a freaking cat. 
She's the first character that we see petrified. And I think each of the people that we're going to meet who are petrified are innocent in some way. And so I think it's important to say that in so many situations, you know, whether it's climate change or other issues, the people who are most impacted first by the issue are often the most innocent in creating it. Yes. And actually, I was kidding about Mrs. Norris deserving this. But it is interesting. She's still an innocent victim, even if I dislike her. And I think that's something really frustrating about innocent victims in the way that we perceive them, is that if they're not totally innocent and like saints, then we have a harder time seeing them as someone who was in the wrong place or the wrong time. ta Coates recently said, you can be a jerk and still not have deserved to be killed. And we often conflate the two. And so just because I hate cats doesn't mean that Mrs. Norris is not a totally innocent victim in this moment. Right. And it's like me in the immigration line. Like, I'm guilty of a ton of stuff, including probably having that cheese with me. But I am innocent in terms of having the right paperwork to enter the country. And I think so often we extrapolate those labels of guilty and innocent for a whole person instead of the specific thing that we're talking about. And that's exactly what's going on in this chapter, too. It's interesting. When we love somebody, we see their flaws or their mistakes as individual and not necessarily as representative of who they are. But when we don't have a loving, trusting relationship, any bad deed, we just let it entirely envelop the other person. And I think that that's what you see happening across party lines, across racial lines, across class lines. It's if you don't recognize yourself in the other, you're like, well, this one thing about you makes you bad. Casper, it's now time for our spiritual practice, and we are going to practice once again with sacred imagination. So I'm going to take you on an imaginative journey, and we are going to see what deep, meaningful things we can extract from the experience of imagining ourselves in this scene. Are you ready? I've taken off my glasses, and I am closing my eyes. So, Casper, this is in Professor Binz's classroom. Hermione has asked him about the Chamber of Secrets, and this is a back and forth between him and several students. It's a mildly lengthy passage, but I would like for you to imagine that you are an anonymous student, Adam McPhee, in this classroom. But, sir, said Seamus Finnegan, if the chamber can only be opened by Slytherin's true heir, no one else would be able to find it, would they? Nonsense, of flattery, said Professor Binns in an aggravated tone. If a long succession of Hogwarts headmasters and headmistresses haven't found the thing. But, Professor, piped up Pavardi Patil, you'd probably have to use dark magic to open it. Just because a wizard doesn't use dark magic doesn't mean he can't, Miss Pennyfeather, snapped Professor Binns. I repeat, if the likes of Dumbledore, but maybe you've got to be related to Slytherin, so Dumbledore couldn't, began Dean Thomas, but Professor Binns had had enough. That will do, he said sharply. It is a myth. It does not exist. There's not a shred of evidence that Slytherin ever built so much as a secret broom cupboard. I regret telling you such a foolish story. We will return, if you please, to history, to solid, believable, verifiable fact. And within five minutes, the class had sunk back into its usual torpor. So, Casper, what was it like to be anonymous 
Adam McPhee in the back of this classroom. Well, I was really angry at Bins because this was the first time where I really felt like, listen, Bins, you don't have the same thing at stake as I do because I'm alive and you're not, frankly. And like, I could die and you can't. And that's really important to me because uh, I'm 12 and <laughs> I have my whole future ahead of me and I want to be a healer. So there. Well, that's that was me as Adam McPhee. And I felt like, you know, not only was Bins not listening to the urgency of a number of students in our classroom, but he didn't even know our names. And I felt just so belittled and I lost so much respect for him because I think I treated him kind of as a joke before, as someone who's just weird and he prattles on about boring warlock history. But now I'm like actually angry at him. Yeah, it reminded me of the moments when I loved my grandparents, but around 12, I realized I was like, oh, they're homophobic. And I just got written off again and again in these conversations with my grandparents, you know, as a young kid who was passionate about things. And it was, no, I'm right and you're out of touch. You know, and I feel like kids often move us into more progressive places. And it's our job as adults to listen to kids in those moments and Bins is just not listening to these students at all. There is a real consensus of fear, and he's just not willing to engage with it. I mean, he's also literally out of touch. (laughs) (laughs) You're so proud of yourself. But I love your point, Vanessa. You know, I think the students at this point are really discovering their own set of values and priorities and are verbalizing them now and especially doing it together, you know, builds the confidence of everyone. Hermione has broken the ice, but all these other voices are joining the chorus now. And it's I really think it's not just about inquisitiveness or like, oh, let's learn a funny story. There's something really at stake and they're afraid and they're trying to protect themselves with the knowledge that they need. And they're learning that you can't just trust institutions to look after you. They've had too many experiences at this point to assume that everything will be okay. Casper, is there something that the sacred practice with this passage has taught you about innocence and could reframe what we've discussed so far about innocence or enlighten it? The thing that strikes me most is this idea of the loss of innocence. And we often think of that as a bad thing, you know, like this beautiful childhood has gone and, you know, we can't access this free imagination anymore. But I think there's also something really important about losing that innocence. The students right now are figuring out how to protect themselves And they're right to do that because it turns out the Chamber of Secrets is real. So I think the idea of losing our innocence, maybe we should reframe it as gaining the knowledge we need in order to survive. Thank you for going on this imaginative adventure with me, Casper. Thank you for revealing this anger that I felt in the book. I didn't know we'd find that. I loved Adam. Adam McPhee. He had opinions. He did. He was just sitting right behind Pavati and was like, oh, she'll deal with it. And then was like, her name is not Pennyfeather. Exactly. I have had a crush on her for a year and a half. Why are you calling her by the wrong name? Please go to the bowl with me, Pavati. Adam. This week's voicemail is from Ian Bawa. Hi, Vanessa and Casper. My name's Ian, and I'm calling from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. And I just finished your podcast on uh, book two, chapter four, at Flourish and Blots, with the theme of shame. And I thought this was a really great interpretation, um, as uh, Vanessa, you brought up the fact that you live uh, with students, and some people bring shame or don't understand. And I recently uh, 
moved out for the first time and I'm 30 years old and I moved out from my home. I lived with my dad uh, and when I was 19, my mom passed away from breast cancer and uh, it was just my dad and I living together and when I was 19, I did want to move out before she passed away but I ended up staying at home and I just did because my dad was there and I got people sometimes girlfriends, people, just generally some people, they didn't understand. And I didn't want to have to explain that. No, my mom passed away and, you know, my dad and I are there for each other and this is how it is. And I, I didn't personally care that I lived at home, but some people would make me feel shame that I, that I lived at home still. And I hated that. And I felt so bad. And in this last week I, where I just moved out, I have so much anxiety living in this new place by myself. And I don't, I didn't want this. I was actually pretty generally happy staying with my dad um everyone else kept pushing me and so as i was uh unpacking listening to your podcast and uh i heard vanessa even talk about you know her experience with a somewhat similar situation i i just couldn't help but to have to at least call and you know uh relate to shame and especially in this chapter with you know the weasley family and how people look at them for being poor uh or for being muggle lovers uh and everything in that area but it's uh i don't know it was great it was really good and it it came at a very good time that i needed to hear someone else go through something similar so i appreciate it you guys have been doing a great job it's a really cool idea for a podcast and uh you know keep doing it i'm excited for you to get through the entire series and maybe even the movies okay have a good one, guys. Ian, thank you so much for your voicemail. And I think, you know, more and more, so many of us are staying at home longer and longer. And, you know, it's becoming more socially acceptable, but it's still a hard thing to manage. And you had just such a compassionate and wonderful reason for wanting to stay there. I think that that's really beautiful and no pun intended, but it's a shame that you had to feel, you know, embarrassed about it in that way. But I also just want to say to you that as somebody who thinks transitions are the worst and really hard, something that I say to my students when they move in at the beginning of the year and are homesick and terrified is that six weeks from now, you're just going to wake up and you're going to forget that you were terrified and felt lonely, that transitions take time. And I just know that you're going to be great and that this new adventure is going to be really rewarding for you. So thank you so much for your voicemail. Thanks, Ian. Vanessa, it's time to bless someone in the pages of this chapter. And I have a good sense of who you might be blessing this week, but I want to hear it from you. I am going to bless Hermione Granger, a minor character who some of you might know. Um, Hermione asks the question first, and nobody's ever asked Bins a question. She is breaking a social norm. She is asking a question that might be embarrassing, like maybe nobody else cares. And she is just brave first. And I think that doing anything first sort of deserves our blessings. Kissing first, saying I love you first, raising your hand first, volunteering for something first. Anything like that is really scary. And so I want to bless Hermione for being brave. Casper, who would you like to bless for us this week? My blessing is for Professor Binns, which is maybe a weird person to bless, but I really feel that Professor Binns 
needs to do what we call in divinity school some vocational discernment, i.e. to really think about what he should be doing with his time and with his career. You know, sometimes we enter into a job or in a relationship and we're really clear about why we're there and we love doing what we're doing and we're passionate. And then over time, the joy starts to fade. And sometimes you're standing in front of a classroom like Professor Bins, maybe decades after you've started, and you shouldn't be a teacher anymore. And I feel like this blessing is for Professor Bins or anyone who is doing something that they know deep inside they should no longer be doing. And I want to give Professor Bins and anyone else the full permission to hand in your notice and do something else because the world needs us where we are giving our best. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Next week, we'll read Chapter 10, The Rogue Bludger, through the theme of complaining. To buy tickets to our live show and find out how you can join us at NerdCon in Boston in February, please go to our website, harrypottersacredtext.com. It's wonderful if you're willing to leave us a review and rate us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast, and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook. And you can send us voicemails at harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. This week's episode was produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turkile, and me, Vanessa Zoltan. Our social media coordinator is Jen Stark. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is part of the Panoply Network. You'll find ours and other great shows at panoply.fm. We would like to thank Ian Bawa for this week's voicemail, Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, and Stephanie Paulsell. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Why do we sometimes tell untruths to hide truths, even if those truths that we're hiding are perfectly innocent? (sighs) Fix my life, please. (laughs) Also, is there God? (laughs) What else? What else? What is free will? (laughs) Today with Professor Sultan. I have all the answers, guys. Stick with me.